My goal tonight is to examine many, many sources about Moshe and ask a bunch of questions to understand who he was, what was his persona, what is his unique quality and qualities, and to try to build from that some very important lessons for us. I want to start with the Torah's eulogy of Moshe, which is all the way to the end of the Torah. The very last thing that happens in the Torah is the death of Moshe, and then there's a few verses after Moshe has already died, the Torah eulogizes him. And it's really interesting to think about, or, you know, or to think about the Torah's perspective and how the Torah sends off Moshe. One of the very last things that it says about him. So the verse tells us, and this is source number one. That's the last word of the Torah is Yisrael. All the things that Moshe did, the strong hand, all the great uh, mora, fear that he Moshe did. Yisrael. It's, it's highlighting all the miracles that Moshe did before the eyes of all of Israel. So what is this last thing that it says before the eyes of all of Israel? What's that referring to? What did, what did Moshe do? Something so stunning in front of everyone, all the eyes of all of Israel. So Rashi tells us, what is this last heralding accomplishment of Moshe? What's the hallmark of Moshe's life? He did before the, all of Israel. So you would think maybe he brought us the Torah, took us out of Egypt. Says Rashi, Shenaso libo lishbor haluchos. Moshe was inspired to break the luchos, to break the tablets. Le'enehem, in front of the eyes of all of Israel. As it says, Va'ashabrem le'enehem. Moshe tells the Jewish people, I broke it before your eyes. Ve'hestim adas ha'kadosh baruch le'dayto, and they might agree to him. Shenemar asher shibarta, the luchos that mote that you broke, and the famous words of the Gemara, yasher kochacha shashibarta. What is the one accomplishment that towers above all in Moshe's life? That Moshe, when he came down from the mountain, the Jewish people are worshipping the golden calf. He sees them, he takes the tablets that were in his hand, and he smashes them on the floor. That is the greatest accomplishment of Moshe's life, and that's the last thing you should think about when uh, we're eulogizing Moshe. What That's his peak accomplishment, which of course is very strange. If you understand that story, of course, what, why did he do it? And, and he did it on his own, and God agreed to him. But why is that presented as the pinnacle and the zenith and the acme of Moshe's life. This is peak Moshe. This is the apex. This is where he reached the top. He broke the luchos. He broke the tablets. Very, very strange idea. That's, I think, a very, very good question. That's the last thing the Torah tells us about him. What's the first thing the Torah tells about him? Moshe. And it was, this is source number two, it was during those days, and Moshe grew up, Moshe grew up in the house of Pharaoh as a prince, and he went out once he grew up, and he looked at his brothers, and they of course were slaves. Vayar Losam, and he saw their suffering. Vayar ish Mitzri, Maki ish Ivri Me'achav, and he saw an Egyptian man hitting a Hebrew man of his brothers. Now, if you read this verse, you find an incredible oddity that's very rare. It only appears one other place in the Torah. The verse says that Moshe went up; he grew up. And it was during those days he grew up, and he went out to his to his brothers, vayar besivlosam, and he saw their suffering, vayar ishmitzri, and he saw an Egyptian man hitting a Jewish man of his brethren. What's surprising that this verse describes Moshe saw one thing and he saw again. It uses the word vayar, and he saw. He uses it twice. The only other place that this appears in the Torah is when Abraham had his uh, encounter with the three angels at the uh, door of his tent, and he meets three angels, and he goes and gives them food, it too says, 
Vayarin he saw twice. Now the Talmud asked the question, what did Moshe see? He saw, what did he see? This is from the Midrash Shmos Rabbah. Vayarin what did he see? So initially the Gemara says, what he saw was, he saw them suffering. And he would cry and he said, oh, if only I could die for your pain. That's what he says. And there's no harder work than building with bricks. And he would lower his shoulder and help each and every one of them. That's a very interesting teaching in the Midrash. What did Moshe see? He saw the people suffering. So what did Moshe do? Moshe says, ah, I see the Jewish people suffering. I'm going to help them. So what does he do? He sees a guy schlepping birds and he runs over to help him. And he sees another guy slapping bricks, and Rovers runs over to help him. And the whole day he's running around helping people. So that's what the Midrash says. Which is very surprising, because if you see a nation comprised of hundreds of thousands of slaves, you want to help them. What's your solution? I'm going to go and schlep with them. How many people could you possibly help? Maybe you help 10 people a day, 20 people a day, 100 people a day, it's not even a drop of bucket. So if Moshe is trying to help the people, he should come up with better solutions. What is this thing, Moshe, like the first thing we told about Moshe, the very first thing, that he saw the suffering of the people and he would go and try to help them schlep bricks. How could he possibly, you're not even making a dent in the problem. So why is Moshe going and trying to help the people in a way that really doesn't solve the problem? All he's doing is helping a very, very small amount compared to the amount of suffering that, 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 that uh, exists. Now, I would advise everyone, if they have a chance to read the whole Medrash, a very fascinating Medrash, I'm going to go to the next source in source number five. We know Moshe becomes famous for a lot of things, but the Torah testifies upon him that Moshe was the most humble person that, have ever, that has ever lived. Moshe was more humble, much more humble than anyone else that existed. Which, it's a pretty remarkable thing to be the best in, in one area. But it's, it's unlikely that someone will be the best in this area and the best in this area and the best. It's, if someone excels, they excel usually in one field. Moshe, we're told, the Torah testifies to Moshe, he is the most humble person that has ever lived, much more humble. That's number one. Number two, in verse in, in Deuteronomy, it says, Lo kam navi od Moshe was the greatest prophet that has ever lived as well. So to me, it's always interesting when the Torah is portraying Moshe's greatness, it tells us that he is the most humble man, he is the, also the greatest prophet, he's also the one who gave us the Torah, he's also the one who went 40 days and 40 nights without eating or drinking, he's also the one who split the sea, he's also one who did. How is it possible that someone like Moshe became so great at so many disparate areas of life? Humility is one thing. Someone feels like they're humble. Prophecy, ostensibly, is something entirely different. So how is it possible, how did Moshe accomplish the becoming the greatest in so many different areas? I think it's a decent question. But not only that, the Gemara tells us that Moshe's prophecy was not just greater, more volume of prophecy, but it was actually a different kind of prophecy. What the Gemara says, the Gemara in Ivamos, Moshe, all the other prophets, with the exception of Moshe, they saw a very 
uh, unclear vision. But Moshe, Moshe nistakel ba'aspaklaria mi'ira. Moshe, on the other hand, he had this level of prophecy called aspaklaria mi'ira. So the Romans, for example, for example, tells us there's many different levels of prophecy. Many, just as many, just like there's many levels of, of wisdom, there's many different levels of prophecy. But Moshe is not just a different level of prophecy, it's a different type of prophecy. Everyone has prophecy, aspaklaria she'ina mi'ira, an unclear vision. Moshe has a clear vision. What does that mean specifically? The Rambam in chapter 7 of Yesodi HaTorah, Foundations of the Torah, he had, this, the whole chapter is oriented about the topic of prophecy. And he says like this. He first describes what prophecy is, and then he says, All the rules that we said regarding prophecy, These are the rules for all the Nevi'im, all the prophets. We're showing them the early ones, the later ones. Chutz Moshe Rabbeinu. So all the other prophets, of the millions of prophets that have ever lived, they all fit into one basket. There's one set of rules for their prophecy. With the exception of Moshe Rabbeinu, Rabban Shechonavim. He's the, the rabbi, the master of all the Nevi'im. So what's the difference? What is the difference between Moshe's prophecy and the prophecy of all the other prophets? So the Rambam lists four distinctions between Moshe's type of prophecy, Aspaklaria Mi'ira, and the type of prophecy of all the other prophets. Number one, All the other prophets, they prophesize in a dream or in a vision. Moshe Rabbeinu and Moshe Misnavavu Erva Omer. Moshe, when he prophesizes, he's awake and he is standing. And quotes a verse to support it. That's number one. So all the other prophets, they're, they're sleeping, they're, they have a trance, they have a vision. Moshe is awake, he's alert, and he's standing. Number one. Kol Hanavim Alidei Malach. All the other prophets, they don't prophesy directly from God. Rather, they prophesize via a malach, via an in- intermediary. In fact, the Ram says that there's a s- ten layers, ten levels of malachim, of angels. The lowest one is called the ishim. Ishim says the Ramam from the word ish, because they're closest to humans, and therefore, when God wants to prophesize or wants to communicate to a human, he does it via the, the angel that's closest to humans. This is the Rambam in chapter 3 of Yesodia Torah. People are less than angels, and therefore the touch point, so to speak, that they have with the spiritual world is with the closest angel, which is the Ishim. Moshe apparently was greater than the angels, as we'll see. Moshe jumped over all ten levels of angels, and that's why he's able to communicate directly with God. Now, what is important to know, in this week's partial, we have the episode of the burning bush. In the burning bush episode in chapter 3 of Exodus, it is abundantly clear in verse 2 that Moshe is not talking to God directly. He's talking to God via an angel. It's a malach. It says in the verse, it's a malach. It's an angel. Clearly, even when Moshe reached prophecy with the episode of the burning bush, it was not directly with God. It was Then it was with an angel. Clearly, Moshe ascended even higher when he achieved the peak prophecy with God. In fact, the Sforna, one of the commentaries... I saw this today. The Sforna writes is that by Mount Sinai, Moshe went up to that highest level of prophecy and he never left it. And that's why by Mount Sinai, as the Ram says, he, he separated himself from women. He divorced his wife. He didn't divorce her necessarily, but he separated himself from his wife because Moshe essentially went from human to angel 
at Mount Sinai. And that's why he eclipsed all the level, ten levels of angels, and now he's communicating directly with God. But that, but that wasn't initially, wasn't, wasn't the beginning. So all the prophets, Aide Malach, Lefitach Roim, Ashim Roim, but Marshal Lechida. And that's why all the other prophets, they see it, they, they see the communication, but it's, it's not verbal communication, it's imagery. They see something and they have to interpret it. Moshe Rabbeinu, Loida Malach, he doesn't have prophecy via Malach. She never pe el pe adarbo, face to face, mouth to mouth, I will talk to him. And that's why, for example, um, Prophet Isaiah were told that he sees a bloated pot. Whatever that meant, that is the job of the prophet generally is to decrypt the message that God sends to him. God sends him a message and it's in the form of some sort of image and then he has to understand what exactly God wants from him. Every prophet has his own style. Two prophets cannot have the same style of prophecy. Why? Because every prophet has to filter the prophecy through their own understanding, and therefore they have their own spin on it. But Moshe did not have a prophecy via some sort of interpretation. It was direct communication from God. Every single mitzvah is told to us by Moshe. Because Moshe, we know, is nothing but a funnel from God. He's just giving us what God gave to him. Whereas if Abraham gave us a Torah, we would say, yes, you're Abraham, the greatest prophet uh, of his time, but there's still some Abrahamic influence in your, in your commentary, in your explanation of the Torah, because it has to be filtered through you. There's your own style. Moshe's not adding anything stylistically. He's just giving us what God gave to him. So it's important. So, of course, a, if someone is a prophet, they already know how to do prophecy. But it's important for Torah, Torah's sake, because Torah has to be, for, has, we want God's Torah. We don't want, even if it's a prophet, we want God's Torah. And therefore, Moshe gave us the Torah, and therefore, it had to be that whoever gave us the Torah gave it to us with this level of prophecy. That's the same number two. So number one, during the day, uh, Moshe during the day, Moshe is direct communication. Thirdly, all the other prophets, they're scared, they're bewildered, and they start to tremble when God prophesies to them. Moshe, Ain't okay. Why? The way Moshe was with God is like a man speaking to his fellow. Just like when I'm talking to my friend, a person is not terrified to hear the words of his friend. Moshe was totally at peace and at ease. He was able to communicate with God. Moshe Rabbeinu didn't change for prophecy, which is a very interesting thing. With this, all these things, by the way, are linked, as we'll see. But the underlying link is that for, for a regular prophet, even though they achieved prophecy, they were still getting more than they could handle. And that's why they had to be at night. And that's why they couldn't decide whenever there wasn't direct communication. And that's why they were shaking. Because they still had a part of their body that was real, that was separating between them and God. That's why it was muffled. That's why it wasn't direct communication. There had to be something that filtered through from God to them. But because they had something that opposed prophecy, therefore, they, whatever opposed prophecy, resisted to the prophecy, and therefore your body is saying, I don't want this prophecy. It starts shaking, convulsing like a leaf. Moshe, because he had denuded himself 
and divested himself of anything that was in opposition to prophecy to God, therefore he was calm, he was at ease when he prophesied to God because that was his normal, natural state. And look at the next thing. All the other prophets, they don't prophesy whenever they want. Moshe Rabbeinu came, but Moshe prophesies whenever he wants. Whenever he wants, Moshe, at any time, he's always ready for prophecy because that's his normal, natural state. All the other prophets, they would have to prepare, they'd have to kind of tidy up their spiritual house to be ready for prophecy. Moshe is already there because that's his natural state. I want you to read this. This last line is very critical because this really explains everything. Call and Avim, all the other prophets, mehem. When, when, when prophecy departs from them, they go back to their tents. They go back to their body, to the needs of their body. They're like everyone else. They have this ascendant prophecy and they're their body is not a factor, but it still is a factor, so it resists. But then prophecy is over, and they're back to human, and they're back to their body, they go back to their tent, and they're, they're with it like everyone else. The feet of the person is the same. They don't leave their wives, because they're a human. They have a family life as well. You know, the, their prophecy is their nine-to-five job, but they still go home every day. Moshe Rabbeinu, lo chazer rishon. Moshe did not go back to his tent. He separated from his, from his wife forever. And from everything that's similar to that, everything that's a normal function, a normal relationship of a body, Moshe stopped doing it. Do you know why? Because he rid himself of his body. His body was not a factor at all. His mind was bound to God. And that glory did not depart from him forever. And his face was ablaze with light. And he became as holy as angels. And we'll see even greater than angels. So Moshe was not just a prophet. He was a different kind of prophet. He didn't have to go through filters. He didn't have to be ready for it. He didn't have to be in a trance. He didn't have to limit his body. He didn't have to appease his body. His body was not a factor at all in his ascent to prophecy. And that's why he was actually a different prophecy entirely. So I want to just examine what this actually means and how to get there. The Torah makes a a big deal about the fact that Moshe went up 40 days and 40 nights without eating or drinking. The verse tells us in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 9, Moshe testifies on himself and the Torah puts it in there for eternity. For 40 days and 40 nights, he did not eat bread nor drink any water. Now, what happens to a human who doesn't drink or eat for 40 days? They die. And it's interesting, we know Moshe is alive after that as well. How did Moshe survive? I think you already know somewhat of the answer. But that's just an interesting thing. And the Torah makes a big deal about this. Also, on the run-up to Sinai, the Torah tells us that God, God tells Moshe, the reason why we're going to have the Sinai is the people believe in you, in Moshe. Uh, this is in Exodus 19.9. And God said to Moshe, Behold, I am coming to you in the thickness of the cloud. Why? In order that the nation should hear when I speak to you, and also in you they will forever believe. V'gam b'cha ya'aminu le'olam. 
And this is the only time in the Torah, and to my knowledge, the only time in anywhere in Jewish literature, where the term emuna, faith, is, dis- is connected to faith in a person, not in God. That the Jewish people have faith in Moshe, which to me is surprising. Well, how, why would we have faith in Moshe? Moshe is a human like any other human. And the Torah is saying the purpose of Sinai is to have faith in Moshe, which on its own right is interesting. They trust that Moshe is speaking directly to God, and therefore the Torah that he is going to teach them is indeed directly from God. But to me it was surprising that Moshe, we have to have faith in Moshe. We can't just trust him like any other prophet. There's mitzvahs to trust a prophet, but there's a special mitzvah of the Muna in Moshe, which is interesting. I, don't want, I, I want to kind of understand that. Also, we're told that Moshe, when he descended from the mountain, his face was shiny. His face was, was bright. And the Talmud tells us that his face was as bright as the sun. Pnei Moshe kepnei chama. And the people couldn't look at him, just like if you tried to look at the sun, you wouldn't be able to see it. And the question is, what is this? Is this some sort of magical potion that Moshe had, this great skin care that he had, that made his skin so translucent and so bright? It's just a surprising thing. Uh, Moshe had to, in fact, wear a mask, so that way the people wouldn't be blinded by him. Also, we're told that Moshe was equal to 600,000 Jews. Rashi tells us, quotes the Gemara, Shakul Moshe Keneged Kol Yisrael. If you look at all of Israel and Moshe, they were equal. Also, we're told that Moshe time traveled. The Gemara Menachas tells us that when Moshe went up to heaven, he asked the Almighty, how come you're making crown, crownlets on top of letters? And God said, well, Rabbi Kiva's going to be around and he's going to deduce from every crownlet piles and piles of laws. Moshe says, I want to see him. God says, okay, get into the uh, time travel mechanism of God, way back machine, and instantly Moshe is teleported 1,400 years in the future and he's sitting in Rabbi Kiva's lecture. Now, that's not the most surprising part of that particular Talmud piece, which is surprising. But how is Moshe able to time travel? How, how did he do it? How come rules that, Mo- that apply to everyone else don't apply to Moshe? It's just, a, it's just a strange thing. Moshe's time traveling. What's going on? I want to try to build. I want to try to build a model of who Moshe was, and then everything else will fall into place. And we already saw a little bit in the Rambam to explain it. How does someone achieve, uh, obtain prophecy? So we spoke about this a little earlier. Prophecy is something that God decides He wants to speak to you. So is it arbitrary who God chooses to speak to? In the secular world, they believe that well, some guy wakes up and says, oh, God spoke to me. Well, you can't disprove it, right? Muhammad says, God spoke to me. Or Joseph Smith says, God spoke to me. Or some cult leader says, God spoke to me. How would we know? And the truth is, if someone in Judaism says, God spoke to me, and they're not renowned for their piety, you know what happens? They get executed as a false prophet. Because in Judaism, we don't believe that prophecy is a lottery ticket that anyone can win. Prophecy is a stage of someone's growth. Prophecy is something you earn, not that you get. That's a certain status called a prophet. It doesn't mean someone is always prophesizing, but it means they are worthy of prophecy. If someone were to walk into the, to the basin and say, I'm a prophet of God and here's my prophecy, and we know this guy's this guy's not a prophet. Well, we know he's a false prophet. Well, maybe God spoke to him. No, God didn't speak to him. Because the change 
that creates the opportunity for prophecy is not that God decides to speak to someone. It is that someone makes themselves worthy of God speaking to them. They make themselves into a vessel that's capable of prophecy. God's ready to give prophecy to whomever is ready for it. If someone is ready for it, it means that they change themselves to be now eligible to have prophecy. How does that work? So the Ram tells us. Ramam in chapter 7 of Yisurah Torah, like I said, the chapter that talks about prophecy. You have to be very wise. Gibor, you have to be mighty. Bimidosav, in Midos, in character. Your Yetzer Ra shall not overwhelm you in any matter in the world. Rather, this is someone who instead fights his Yetzer Ra and submits his Yetzer Ra and always wins the battles that he has with his evil inclination. And he has a, a, a mind and a, a knowledge that's broad and correct and very much so. None of it does it say that God decides to speak to someone randomly. What it says is someone makes themselves into a worthy vessel and automatically prophecy resumes. It's almost as if the natural state of man is to have prophecy. We assume that prophecy is, is an abnormality. It's something out of the ordinary. The truth is not having prophecy is out of the ordinary. The normal natural state of, of our soul is to have prophecy. It's just that the reason why we don't have prophecy is because there's other, all these other factors that are polluting and corrupting our soul. We've got our body, we've got a Yetzirah, we've got all, this world, we have all the factors that are polluting and co- contaminating and corrupting our soul that cause that the natural state not be there. Normally, just re- the way things ought to be regularly is that we all have prophecy. We corrupt ourselves, or we, we are, cor- the, the Almighty created a situations where we are now imperfect and we need to purify ourselves. And we're just reverting and restoring, restoring the way it really ought to be, the way it was, is that we should have prophecy. The Ramam is describing here, not someone who God decides to talk to him. God wants to talk to all of us. It's just that we're not ready yet for that. We make ourselves ready and automatically we restore it to the way it really ought to be. Now, how does someone make themselves capable of prophecy? You know what you need to do? You need to bring the status of the soul back to the way it was before it got corrupted. And we've learned several times before already in this setting that the way, the reason why the, the, the causes for co- contamination of the soul are threefold. Number one, it's a body. The body is something that creates problems for the soul to flourish. It is this world. This world creates problems for the soul to flourish. And it's the Yetzirah. If someone negates all those three, automatically they'll restore back to the status of being prophets. It's just, inst- that's how you get prophecy, very simple. Now, the Ramam is telling us that, and there's a Midrash, by the way, that says that as well, Moshe became like an angel. What that means is that he undid, not only did he resist his Yetzirah in his body, he actually rolled it back and, and negated it as a factor and then right away, he's like an angel because his soul is the only factor in his life and the soul is even more powerful than angels. Automatically, he has prophecy and he did it to such a degree that his, that his prophecy even superseded that of angels. I want to look at the status of the soul before it was corrupted. If we want to know what the greatest thing, what the greatest a human could possibly achieve, it's to undo everything that corrupted the soul and polluted the soul before they were born. So the Talmud tells us that before a soul has any influences of this world on the Yetzirah, 
they're in a box called a guf. It's a chamber that contains souls. What's interesting is the word guf means body. So our soul is now in a guf, in an earthly guf. But initially, when it was at its most purest, it was in a heavenly guf. A heavenly box called guf. What's the difference between our guf here and the guf of the heavens? The difference is that our guf only contains one soul. Whereas there's only one box in heaven that contains all the souls. A heavenly guf is able to incorporate within it multitudes and millions and billions of souls at once. Whereas in this world, every soul needs its own guf, needs its own vessel to hold it. What this means is that the major problem that we have in this world, the reason why our soul is under attack, is because we have divisions that separate us from other people. And that's why our soul, our, our, the goof that is holding our soul, cuts out other people. And therefore, I can only have one soul in, in this goof. Whereas in the heavens, one goof contains millions of souls. But this means is that the core problem of this world, and the reason why we're not prophets, and the reason why we're not great, is because we're selfish. We only have ourselves. When you only have yourself, who don't you have? You don't have God, and you don't have your fellow man as well. What happens if someone, someone who achieves the, the greatness, the highest greatest, greatness that he could possibly access is Moshe, because Moshe converted his earthly guf into a heavenly guf. He broke down all the barriers between him and other people. So his guf expanded, like the heavenly guf, to encompass and incorporate within it all the other souls. Says the Talmud, Moshe is equal to all of Israel. What does that mean? All of Israel, 600,000 souls, and Moshe is only one. The answer is no. Moshe changed who he was and expanded his earthly goof to be like the heavenly goof. He undid all the things that caused all the stages of devolvement of his soul, and, there, and therefore it's like the way it was earlier, and he's able to expand to include other souls within him. Number one, Moshe's humility. What's the, what is humility? What is humility? Humility is to have a perspective of yourself vis-a-vis others. Moshe himself was but one six hundred thousandth of his expanded self. If you opened up Moshe's goof, so to speak, what would you find? You'd find six hundred thousand souls in it. Thus, in Moshe's worldview, Moshe himself, vis-a-vis Moshe's expanded self, it was one six hundred thousand. It was almost insignificant. The greatest level of humility is what Moshe achieved. Because in Moshe's own perspective, he, in the more minor sense of the word, was nothing more than one six hundred thousandth of who he was in the expanded. That's what, that's what humility is. It's like, me, I'm so insignificant. I'm only one six hundred thousandth of my, per, my interest, my sphere of identity. And we look at Moshe, how he behaves as a, as a young person. He sees people suffering. So what does he do? He tries to help them. We said, it's not, they're not helping the problem. You're not solving the problem. The answer is no, Moshe's not trying to solve a problem. Moshe is experiencing pain. Because another Jew is suffering, that soul is part of Moshe's expanded growth. The, verse, the first verse says, Vayigdal Moshe. Moshe became 
big. What this means is that Moshe expanded himself to include others within himself. Thus, thus he sees suffering, and it's not that he's trying to leave, solve a problem, pontificate from a platform. He's just responding to pain. If I, if you have pain, you have tons of pain, you're not going to try to alleviate it? Of course you will try to alleviate it. But what if you can't alleviate all of it? So what? You try to leave it as much as you can. That's a natural response to pain. Uh, moreover, Moshe is as bright as the sun. You know why? Because he didn't have anything separating his soul from the rest of the world. If your soul came out and you were able to see a physical soul, it would blind you like the sun is from a different world. Moshe was from a different world. And that's why he had this, these highest levels of prophecy. And by the way, that's why he wasn't bound to the constraints of this, of this universe. His body was not a factor. He doesn't need to eat, doesn't need to drink. He's like an angel. Time travel? Why can, why can he? He's from a different world, from a different sphere, from the spiritual world. He's like an angel. An angel can time travel, no problem. The Luchos is the ultimate of Moshe's greatness. What happens? Moshe is the great leader. He's someone who's the least selfish. How is that manifested more than any other case with the Luchos? If Moshe, Moshe remember, went up to the heavens and he negotiated with angels, he got down his the luchos, which is godly, God-inscripted tablets. And he's bringing it down to the earth. There'll be no greater legacy for Moshe. And yet he sees the people behaving in a terrible way. And he recognizes that he's holding God's tablets, but those people are sitting. And if they have God's tablets, and that's going to be a clash, and they're all going to die. So Moshe is presented with the ultimate dilemma. On one hand, he has an absolute guarantee for immortality in his hands, personal greatness, contrasted with suffering of the people. Which is he going to choose? And thus Moshe smashes the luchos because that was the normal thing for him to do. To him, suffering of other people would instantly outweigh his own personal greatness. Therefore, in this episode, more than anywhere else, do we see Moshe's greatness on display. I want to end off here with a statement in the Talmud. This is just interesting, just to see how the Talmud looks at Moshe. Um, this is from the uh, Gemara in Shabbos. Rabbi Shuba Levi says, when Moshe went up to the heavens, the angels said to God, ma isha Why is there someone who was born to a woman amongst us? Why is this human here? Human here. Amar Lahen said, God responds, Lekabel Torah, but to get the Torah. So the angel's like, what? You give the Torah to this guy? Chamuda genuza, this hidden, archived, beautiful thing, treasure, that has been hidden over here for 974 generations before the world was created. You're going to give it to flesh and blood? That's the Gemara. And ultimately, Moshe has to battle with them to, to show why he should be deserved of of getting the Torah. But to me, what's always interesting is that when the angels look at Moshe, what do they call him? Yulud Isha. He was born to a woman. When they describe, well, God's like, he's going to give a Torah to humans. What do they call humans? Basar Vadam, flesh and blood. How come they change the, he's talking about humans. Moshe's a human. The humans are humans. Why does he call Moshe Yulud Isha and everyone else Basar Vadam? The answer is that the only element of humanity that was like a normal human that Moshe had was the fact that his mother was a human, was, 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 was a woman. 
That was the last thing that he had left. That was the only vestiges of humanity. He, he was no buster, he was no dumb, he was none of that. That, that. That's all it was. Moshe was an angel. And he's able to argue with them like an angel. He was even greater than them. He's able to overwhelm them with his arguments. So when they see him, they're like, what's this thing, which is greater than us spiritually, but we could see was his pedigree is that he was the, you know, he was the son of a woman. And he's bringing it to humans, to flesh and blood, that's everyone else. Indeed, that's what Moshe is, and that explains everything. Moshe is the greatest prophet, because what's prophecy? Getting rid of those things. Moshe is the most humble, what's humility? It's all, it's all converging along the same line. Indeed, Moshe is a giant among men, an Ishalakim man of God. And indeed, I think that knowledge of, of Moshe and how he attained his greatness, first of all, it will help us understand the rest of the Torah because it's all about Moshe. But also, it shows us what's the overwhelming process that Torah is trying to give us to take us from Adam, so to speak, who brought all these problems into this world. He brought the Yetzirah, he brought the physicality into this world. And that's why the Torah starts with Adam and ends with Moshe, because the process of the Torah is to take us from Adam, who brought all these problems into the world, and hopefully bring us as much as we can as close to Moshe, who eradicated and undid all of that.